Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. A warm welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great discussion ahead with Elliot Turner of RGA Investment Advisors and Phil Ordway of Anabatic. So let's get right into it. Elliot, I will go to you first. Great. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. Um, So this week, what I want to talk about is this idea of small companies competing against larger, better capitalized ones. And specifically, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot through the years because my book has ended up in a decent amount of positions where um, one of the key pillars of the bear thesis or the risk side of the ledger has been uh, when, where, how uh, will the inevitable competition from whether it be Facebook, Amazon, or Google uh, hurt the business? And you know, I've seen this emerge time and again, uh, where you know it could be as simple as there's just one headline of these companies, these big companies musing about entering a business and the stock that I'm involved in takes a meaningful hit in a given day. Uh, But over the long run, one one of the things I've noticed is that while these things matter a lot in very short timeframes, over the long run, there hasn't truly been a big impairment of, uh, by and large, most of these businesses from having competed with the large ones. And very recently, I was on a call about Roku. Obviously, sorry, I can't help bringing that one up, but it's very special to me. I was on a call about Roku. And um, it was with one of the early key employees on the platform side of the business. And he had a very interesting insight. He said that Amazon starting to compete with them in creating a CTV platform was one of the most importantly, good events, consequentially good events to have happened for the business. And the reason he said as much was before Amazon competed with them, when they were asking for a certain cut from SVOD revenues, when they were asking for a certain share of inventory for advertisers, their partners perceived this as a tall ask and were skeptical about the business model. And when Amazon came in, with a similar business model, their partners suddenly were like, okay, this is fair. Let's play ball and started moving more budget and got more interested in Roku as a partner. So I thought that was a really interesting example of how, you know, not only might it not be a risk, but it actually could accelerate and bring to fruition um, the actual opportunity. And in that sense, it's confirmation that perhaps some of these companies are on to interesting things. So, you know, by and large, I mean, when I count right now, I have about eight positions in my book that either right now or somewhere along the way, it was said that they are competing intently and mightily um, with some of these bigger, more well-capitalized players. And there's another angle to come at it from. I think Mario Sabelli and Modest Proposal have both introduced this framework that, uh, you know, small and focused is is, is better uh, than than, than, than big and non-core. Um, so when, you're, when when your essence is crafted around one specific thing, uh, 
Um, and that one thing is everything to you and all your resource and all your energy and attention and time go toward that one thing uh, versus a larger player who's got many projects going on. Even if you're Bezos with the two pizza rule and decentralizing your, your uh, imperatives, um, you still have a lot of different things going on. Um, how do you compete for attention? How do you make sure that you're not necessarily on the one hand, building the best product while on the other hand, imperiling one of your other key business objectives. And again, with Roku, this specifically was really important. Um, one of the biggest drivers for Roku several years back was when you know, Amazon was doing good things to build CTV, but Amazon didn't have YouTube on uh, and Prime TV wasn't available on Google devices because they were fighting more on the content side than the hardware side, but it really imperiled their ability to compete in the in the hardware side. So even if you decentralize your management structure, how do you make sure, make sure that your institutional imperative is aligned to kind of attack this one area that you want to grow in? Um, it's really hard. So small and focused has this like much clearer, better path to win. And I find that to be a very interesting model because like, you know, I think about a company like Match and when it was uh, still part of IAC, and I think it was in the spring, maybe late winter of 20. 18, when Facebook decided that they were going to experiment with a dating service. And it's like, whoa, suddenly matches down 30% in one day. Oh my God, Facebook's going to try to compete with them. And you could try to attack it from any angle. Uh, meanwhile, here we are, you know, fast forward three years and there's been, uh, I God, I would hardly even know if Facebook was even in the dating business at this point. Obviously, I've followed and have a little more intimacy with uh, and familiarity with what they are doing. But like the fact of the matter is, it didn't change the inertia of the actual business itself. So, you know, I think this is a really interesting framework. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could keep listing off examples, but I think it would be interesting to hear your guys' perspectives on how you approach these kinds of situations, if there are any other uh, examples of it where you find it interesting and there stand out um, these, these little companies competing against the big giants like the Davids versus the Goliaths and how it's gone. And I'd also wonder if there are any examples where you could think like the really large, well-capitalized tech companies um, killing or maybe more meaningfully impairing one of these uh, fast-focused first starters in a given area. So I'll open it up for you guys. Yeah, I've always thought about it kind of the other way around, I guess, sort of similar to your idea. Match and Facebook definitely jumped to mind and that I, I didn't have a position in either at the time and, and wasn't all that familiar necessarily with the online dating market as a business at that time either. But the first thing that jumped to my mind when I saw it was that, you know, this just kind of validates the market for everybody else and almost looks desperate or late to the party from Facebook as the incumbent and, and just broader, more broadly than that, I've always thought that when large companies, you know, come to a nascent little niche that's already being infiltrated by smaller, leaner, hungrier, younger companies, that the risk is actually, you know, more to them than it is to the smaller companies. Because again, I think it just draws more attention, more eyeballs, more capital to the space. I mean, America in particular always loves a David versus Goliath story. And so if anything, you know, I would be more worried about the other way around, that if there's a, a small, young, hungry, tiny little company, whatever the case may be, attacking you as the large incumbent, I would actually be more scared about what that means to the large incumbent. So again, I mean, particularly in this day and age where 
capital is just not the scarce resource, the scarce asset. Um, and, and frankly, where you have plenty of companies that are using capital as a strategy, where the, the whole idea is to just throw money in the wind, let people chase it around. And as they all heard around the money that blows with the wind, you, you throw a lasso around them and say, look at the audience I've captured. I mean, that, that doesn't really have much to do with size right away because there's plenty of ways, thanks to technology and the internet, to do that initially. And by the time a larger company catches onto it, it's almost too late. You've already captured some meaningful scale of audience. So um, I it, it certainly wouldn't deter me if I was looking at it, a small company. And in fact, I mean, it may be actually a draw because if that small company, you know, truly does have the young, hungry, brilliant ideas that can take down a bigger market. I mean, that's that's where the really big money is made. And frankly, I mean, history, forget about tech companies or whatever, the the whatever's happening in the current moment. Bigger organizations are harder to manage and they're slower to respond. And that's always been the nature of progress and innovation was, you know, some new company comes along, some new person comes along with a quicker, better, faster, cheaper way of doing something and and they win. So um, I, I would certainly not put that kind of thing in the list of my concerns if I was looking at it as a uh, potential investment concept with the, with the small companies anyway. Yeah, I would agree. I think in the past with more traditional types of businesses, you could find more natural monopolies, if you will, where uh, scale just is the advantage, and uh, smaller players just don't have a chance. Uh, you know, no matter what focus they bring, if 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 the cost side isn't working out, uh, you just don't really have a chance. That's changed, I think, as we've moved online. Basically, I still have some questions. Like, I didn't really believe that. Um, you guys mentioned dating sites that a J-Date or a Christian Mingle could be really successful because I felt like, um, you know, kind of going back to that John Chambers quote that anytime a horizontal business model meets a vertical business model, it's the horizontal one that wins out. And with uh, online dating, I felt like, well, you know, J-Date um, that or, or Christian Mingle could just be a filter on a on on match, and that ultimately liquidity wins, right? But apparently, um, you know, those those um, businesses have their niches, and so it's it's worked for them. But that's still kind of a, a lingering question for me, because um, you know, it, it you could kind of think about it both ways. Um, and then, Elliot, to your point, I mean, just. The classic example, Zappos versus Amazon, right? Um, Amazon ultimately had to uh, buy Zappos because uh, the focus won out uh, there. Or I remember when um, you know Disney Plus uh, was being talked about, everybody was concerned for Netflix. And what we found out is that actually it has no impact. Uh, if anything, it's kind of positive because it conditions people that that's the model and uh, they should be willing to pay a monthly uh, rate to watch stuff online. So, and, and you know, I, I also kind of like to think about a, a focused player in an internet world can just 
use that screen real estate um, more effectively and in a more targeted way than uh, an unfocused big company. And if you're looking for that one specific thing, when you go to the website of a smaller player, you're going to see everything tailored to that thing. And it's not going to be like on Amazon where you have to fight your way through all kinds of generic stuff to try to get to the actual stuff you're looking for. So yeah, definitely think, uh, Elliot, you're onto something there. Yeah, the, to answer your second question or your other question, Elliot, more directly, um, I'm sure there are examples of, of larger incumbents choking off smaller incumbents, but, but I think it's way more of a risk in situations where access to capital or you know the ability to perpetuate the competition is more of an issue. I mean, again, I think if it's worth the time and attention and effort and capital of the large incumbent to attack the small upstart, that means the small upstart at least has something viable. And if the small upstart has something viable with the promise of any potential size down the road, and, and that seems to be completely validated by the large incumbent's attention, then it's kind of hard to imagine the small upstart not having access to more than sufficient capital, whether from venture funds or otherwise. So it just seems like less of an issue today than maybe it used to. I mean, again, I think it probably was more of an issue, you know, say decades ago. But I will say one other issue where it's where it's very relevant, and this gets into some of the antitrust arguments against the large big tech companies, um, is where they are buying their competitors. And, you know, I guess that when Instagram was purchased, it was like, all right, here's a billion dollars, take it or die. And we're going to come after you. We're going to compete against you. And so look, Instagram chose to take that and it turned into an unbelievably good acquisition for Facebook. The counterfactual would say, you know, there's nothing that was going to stop Instagram from still being really successful and their direct tie to Facebook wasn't necessarily the magic sauce or the, the thing that unleashed all of this growth and value that Instagram's gone on to create. So, but anyway, I'm not opining at all on the merits of the antitrust arguments. I'm just pointing out that there are plenty of examples of large incumbent tech companies and, and large incumbent companies in every industry going out and just buying any potential upstart competition to thwart it right there. Not necessarily to really add much to the incumbent's business, but really just to play defense and and stop it cold in its tracks. And, you know, that's a, it's a strategy. I don't think it's necessarily all that effective, but I certainly couldn't prove it definitively or quantitatively. Well, that's a really interesting line of thinking too. And I think timely. So, I mean, with Instagram, by the way, I'm quite familiar with that backstory. Twitter would have bought them. Uh, Facebook came over the top and made a more compelling pitch. Sure. But if Instagram had stayed independent, don't you think they would have still been pretty successful? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Although that maybe they would have existed in a different way, but yeah, I do think so. Um, the example I was thinking in, in, in a timely sense is, uh, of these, uh, incumbents acquiring the upstart. Um, just look at what the FTC did to the visa plaid acquisition, um, this yeah. past week, yeah. right. You know, visa recognized that they had a challenge from all these incumbent apps and people were moving around money in new ways. Um, and there was like a new set of rails that was built on, you know, in some ways on ACH, but on different technology and on a whole different layer. And Plaid was going to kind of give them a presence in this new world. And uh, sure enough, they couldn't. And, you know, I was thinking about it the same week, uh, Office Depot and Staples were like, you know, supposed to have merged and the FTC had broken that off uh, years ago. 
you know, because it wasn't going to be, uh, they, they were going to have too much share in a market that, you know, eventually became irrelevant. And now here we are where that's happening again. And I'm wondering if some of this M&A uh, landscape becomes a, a more more like a accelerant for, for young and nimble than it does uh, a way for some of the, some of the older, more mature players to defend themselves. A couple other things that I think about from what you guys have said, um, you know, I, I, I view John, the, the uh, Netflix Disney um, example quite interestingly. And I think it relates to the uh, match Facebook. Uh, it turns out, you know, you mentioned JDate and Christian Mingle, the average person who subscribes to a dating site subscribes to three to four dating sites. Um, so people are quite used to uh, dabbling with more than just one because they are looking for something more than just what one might have to offer for a host of different reasons. You know, each has a unique value prop, um, whether it be a different kind of uh, relationship you're looking for or a, you know, uh, more safety features or female friendly, whatever it may be. There's something a little different about each and every one of these. Um, and then also, you know, I was thinking about the the Jim Barksdale quote uh, that Ben Thompson quotes a lot. There are two ways to make money in business. You can unbundle or you can bundle. And Phil, you had mentioned that, you know, maybe it's an advantage for some of these smaller, more nimble businesses to pick apart uh, some of the larger ones. I do think, you know, the behemoths have gotten so big and they're at such a large scale that to move the needle with them, it's hard for them to explore niches. So you could get really, really, really big at web scale in a niche and operate doing something quite interesting that really isn't necessary for the, it, it isn't like on the menu uh, for the big players to compete until you actually get to that scale. And then you're so entrenched and then, you know, good luck, good luck trying to displace that. Um, one area where perhaps there is, I, I, I wonder if that Chambers quote is still relevant to for today about horizontals versus verticals. Um, and I do think certain verticals are winning because if if I'm thinking about areas where, where my thesis is most vulnerable, you know, one of the positions I have is Dropbox. And, you know, I, Slack as well, I think the same lessons apply. Uh, but in the enterprise where you have a centralized, like, you know, uh, CIO infrastructure, um, who wants to deal with just one vendor and one contract and you're the big player and have distribution, in this case, call it Microsoft, right? Um, perhaps you just want to go there, even if there's a better uh, offering in the space because it's easier, it's simpler, and everyone in your business has to follow in line. So whether it be, you know, competing against Dropbox or competing against Slack with Teams, I think that's something that I've thought about. Distribution might be the choke point that really matters. And so when it's consumer, it matters a whole lot less because like you said, the real estate's a big challenge um, on the phone in your app, but but in, in B2B, it, it might matter a whole lot. Yeah, and I should add too that I think just because you have some disadvantage being big as the incumbent and the associated size and bureaucracy that can come with it, there are ways to fight it, right? And I think Amazon, you mentioned, has done as good of a job in that regard as you can. And the, you know, the, whether it's the two pizza rule, if you want to be informal about it, or just extreme decentralization, where people are empowered to make decisions and run with things and you disagree, but you commit and you let people try things and you fail a lot. And, you know, Google lets people work on 
Alphabet lets people work on all sorts of side projects on company time. So, I mean, there are ways to fight this and there are plenty of associated, you know, resources that come with it. You know, have all sorts of facilities and access to ideas and access to, you know, infrastructure and intellectual property and all this kind of stuff. So it's not to say that there's an outright disadvantage. I just think that true disruption innovation is hard to predict in advance. And if you look at it over time, it tends to come from smaller, nimbler, hungrier organizations rather than, you know, big successful ones. So, but again, what we're seeing right now is probably a continuation of the longest period of of dominance by large companies that we've seen in a long, long time. So, you know, maybe those rules are are up for grabs a little bit more than they ever have been. I guess we'll have to wait and see. And there's definitely something different going on with the large players now too. So, I mean, we I can't remember exactly which week it was, but when I introduced the breakup of AT&T as a topic and what it means for some of these players, I do think there's some sort of unlock to be had on the innovative front if they were uh, in their own right, kind of a little more focused and each had their own institutional imperative uh, to do what they needed to do, had their own essence uh, in any given area. And that was like the promise behind Alphabet when Google went to that structure. And I was just having a conversation right. the other day with a friend like, wow, it's like almost really disappointing because they went to this structure, said they're going to decentralize uh, their their respective endeavors and centralized capital allocation. And they like directly invoked Berkshire in describing that model. And I feel like they haven't done any of it. And they've actually made, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe almost been worse uh, in pursuing some of these like uh, opportunities where they should really be very strong. Elliot, I'm curious, you know, what would be your advice uh, to a smaller company going up against a giant in terms of winning? You know, is it is it focus specialization? I mean, does it depend on the industry? You know, what is there a formula, basically, formula for success if you're small? Yeah, I mean, I think the key is know your essence and don't your don't define yourself vis-a-vis the large player because I mean that's definitely where I uh, kind of diagnosed Twitter's problem early in its incarnation as a public company. Like they didn't define themselves as Twitter what they could be. They define themselves vis-a-vis Facebook, and so you know I think there's this allure of trying to position yourself like next to the big players, but really forge your own independent identity and make it very clear. Um, and make sure that everyone in your organization buys into it. But I think that's sort of like, you know, I I do think to an extent it's advantageous in these companies to view it as a battle with the bigger players. Um, It builds unity. It creates an identity. um, It gives you like goals and objectives that you could, you know, judge whether you're winning or not. Um, So I I do think there's something to be said about like building a culture in in that sense. Like, Like that's really important. Don't get lost. Um, in that way. Um, And yeah, I mean, the Roku quote was really interesting to me because, you know, I I, I think there's something to be said about like engaging with your customers when the bigger players do try to compete with you and make sure you're very, very uh, intimately familiar with what your customers want and how best you could service them and what you could give them. So don't lose sight of that. Like, let that be your North Star at the end of the day. Curious what what you guys might think uh, would be helpful there. Yeah, I guess I would say that one unabashed benefit of ubiquitous information and instantaneous access to all the world's knowledge and the various 
you know, technological stacks that have been released in the past few years or decade or so is that it's never been easier to start small and scale without incurring the kind of crippling operating losses and capital burn that were the hallmarks of a lot of entrepreneurship in prior generations. So if you have something that you think works, you know, there's really never been less of an impediment to make it work. It's not to say it's easy. It's not. It's never been easy. It never will be easy. And it does kind of raise the issue of, you know, the paradox of skill, which is that because so many people are trying, it's going to make it harder for all but the superstars to emerge. So, uh, you know, I think you need to have your expectations calibrated along those lines. But, you know, I would just encourage anyone in any company or any venture that that has an idea to not be deterred by the fact that there's some big successful incumbent. It's really just not all that relevant in a lot of cases. Yeah, and I would say... Um you know, when it comes to making, let's say, your customers feel special, every company, no matter how big or small, usually has one CEO, and that person has a certain amount of time at their hands, and that's not scalable. So, you know, a CEO of a small company might be able to call a customer that a CEO of a big company could never do, and therefore, that customer will feel more specially more special when it comes to the smaller companies. So, you kind of have that uh, advantage, I think, that you can just go the extra mile when it comes to customer service and and those kinds of things as a smaller company. And you know, in some lines of business, that counts for a lot. Yeah, totally. I think that's like really how a lot of these co- companies win. They're just so more, so much more focused on their customer, make sure their value prop is like that much better. Um, and they do like generally kind of give some sort of consumer surplus. Uh, so they let, they, they don't try to squeeze every penny out of their customers. Uh, the big guys tend to be a little more focused on how they could extract margin and make sure they're meeting certain quarterly objectives. So that's, that, that's a really good one. Yeah, and one, one thing just that comes to mind on the content platform side, we talked about Netflix and Disney Plus a little bit. And I remember even John Malone saying, you know, Netflix is so big and so dominant that the other guys just don't have a chance, except for maybe Disney Plus and I don't know, somebody else perhaps. But really um, what it is, and I think all of these platforms trying to produce original content is a nod to the fact that it really is not the scale that's the ultimate advantage. It's the uniqueness of certain must-have content. I mean, you could have a platform that's very small, but if they have just one piece of must-watch content, that's enough to get people to sign up for that. And uh, so, you know, I find that kind of interesting that actually you really just need one piece of content that appeals, and it may be a really niche type of content, um, but, you know, it kind of goes against what a lot of people believed was going to happen in that space where there was going to be just one winner that has all the content, but that's not the case. That's so true because I think about this with my wife and I the other night. We had watched uh, The Office a, a lot before bed on Netflix. And um, obviously, as I mean, you may or may not know, The Office has gone exclusive to Peacock as of this year. And once you get past, uh, I think it's season one, you have to subscribe to get further seasons. 
And so while there's not much I want to watch on Peacock, I really do enjoy The Office before bed. So, you know, on the Roku with one click, uh, subscribe to Peacock. Um, but it does then give the company the right to uh, try to get you to attach to something else. So like you win the customer with that one thing, you fight churn by ensuring they attach to something else. And so, you know, that's your wedge to get in and it gives you the right to really experiment and try to find something else that works. So definitely think there's some truth to that. And I do think as people get more open to the idea of subscription as a business model, and that's how uh, all these things are moving, um, you know, I, I, I think people are a little, they, they don't think of their total budget. They're like, is there value for what I'm paying for this? And, and, and they go for it. So leave a lot of surplus room. But that's like the essence of a bundle, right? You pay for the one thing you want. You get 10 things you don't want. Maybe you pick one out of those 10 down the line to, to become part of what's your core offering as well. Yep. Well said. Well, let's move on to our second topic of the day. Uh, Phil, over to you. Sure. Thanks, John. So I actually have a running list of topics that I wanted to address at some point. And uh, over the course of the last week, decided that the one I would pick for this week is, for lack of a better word, the art of BS detection. And I know this is a family podcast, so I'll try not to spell out BS and we'll we'll use from now on baloney. So for anyone who's not familiar with that particular idiom in American English, it means nonsense or um, you know something that a person is saying in an kind of an obtuse way to obscure the uglier truth. So it's kind of promotional garbage, promotional nonsense. So I think as investors and and as we've all seen as citizens, it's important to decide what to believe and what not to believe and to how you go about doing that is actually really crucial as well. And so I've got some reading recommendations that that we'll include in the show notes. Um, You know, I think the first thing that turned me onto this many, many years ago um, was in my former life when I had to do a lot of short selling. You know, you're obviously looking for things where management and companies are promoting a version of the truth that is just not realistic or it's outright fraudulent. And so the best way to learn those tricks is to study things like the great book Financial Shenanigans and learn the in and out in the ins and outs of of accounting manipulation, but also to study just great histories and case studies. Um, you know, more recently, things like Theranos, the book Bad Blood's excellent. I think we've talked about that. Um, you know, going back almost 20 years now, the book about Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, it's one of the best business books I've ever read about anything. So I think if you find as many of those kind of case studies as you can, that's that's probably the, the best way to do it, marrying that with an accounting training. You know, and then you really do have to dive into the psychology of it, though, because that's really where this is born. Um, you know, I've always referred back to the Richard Feynman quote, um, he's an imperfect guy in a lot of ways, but just an absolute genius in many, but maybe one of his best in, insights that, that I've ever, that's resonated with me anyway, had nothing to do with physics. And it was this quote that the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And when I read that the first time, I don't know when that was 15 years ago, maybe it didn't really sink in. I, I just didn't, didn't grasp it, but it's really hit home over the years. And so I think if you dive into some of those kind of psychological principles about why people believe things that they shouldn't believe, you know, it all has psychological implications. I mean, I I forget which Greek philosopher it was that said, what a a man wishes that he will also believe, you know, that certainly applies to investing, right? I mean, if I'm 
inclined to own something, that must mean that I think it's going to go up in value or at least up in price. And so if I'm inclined to, you know, to wish that it were to go up in value or up in price, I'm going to believe that and all the evidence that comes with that and ignore all the evidence that may show me that I'm wrong. Um, so studying that sort of psychology, really doing a deep and thorough examination of Danny Kahneman, Amos Tversky's work and reading Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, kind of the classic treatise there, reading the psychology of human misjudgment, you know, or, or listening to that lecture. Um, I think those are probably the most uh, powerful prescriptions you can you can possibly. I mean, some other off the beaten path um, things that I might recommend. You know, if you read things that are skeptical but not cynical, I think that's a very important distinction. So we need to have this open, active, aggressive, open-mindedness. And so the, you can do that with humor. I mean, I think Where the Cust- Where are the Customer's Yachts by Fred Schwed's one of the best investing books ever written. And if that doesn't teach you to be skeptical, I don't know what else would. Um, On BS by Harry Frankfurt's a very famous essay that's probably 30 or 40 years old now. We'll link to all this stuff in the show notes so you can find it there. Um, the Devil's Financial Dictionary by, by Jason Zweig. Um, if that, awesome. yeah, if that doesn't teach you how to read something presented to you in a pitch book or in an S1 or a prospectus or whatever, and just pause to read something two or three times if it doesn't make sense or isn't presented in plain English, I don't know what else will. And so anyway, the, the reason this, I, I chose this topic this week was actually, um, I just finished reading a book by Scott Galloway, who's a now pretty famous celebrity business school professor at NYU. Uh, he's got a pretty famous blog, No Mercy, No Malice, uh, which I've I've read from time to time. I kind of skimmed his book, The Four, on the big uh, tech, I guess the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, and it was, I, I was intrigued. I mean, there's some interesting stuff, but he's got a section in here um, about exactly this that I just thought was kind of funny. And so he, he goes into this whole digression about yoga babble, which is his term for abstract or spiritual sounding language in S1s or other public disclosures. Um, and he points out that how, how important it is to kind of massage this sort of thing. And he actually goes in with a scale. He kind of diagnoses a bunch of companies um, and, and goes through all their, their S1 filings for a BS rating where one is good and you're, you're very straightforward. You speak in plain English and 10 is like the worst possible level. And he actually gave a nine out of 10, the worst score in the, in the book to Peloton because their, their mission statement in their S1 reads, quote, on the most basic level, Peloton sells happiness, close quote. And his response is, no, just like Chuck Norris and Christy Brinkley and Tony Little, you sell exercise equipment. And he goes on to say that I can relate to the mix of hubris, success, and Christ complex that leads you to believe that your business efforts deserve a valuation worthy of your genius, if not to distract you and your investors from the reality of how hard it is to build an entity that takes in more money than it spends while growing. And so that, you know, that's good writing, but it's also just indicative of the point that, you know, you have to not get caught up in, you know, these these founder-led ideological statements and visions and these fantastical things. I mean, I haven't read, I'm not even sure if it's out yet, but there's a, there's a book coming out about WeWork. That's probably going to be in the hall of fame for that sort of thing, right? Where this very charismatic investor just convinced all sorts of people to put billions of dollars into a business that this was 
pre-pandemic that thing failed, right? I mean, this was it never it never made any sense. And then there's there's lots of other things to read. I'll, I'll cut it off there. But one last thing that caught my attention was um, uh, this morning, ironically enough, Jason Zweig, we just mentioned about the the financial devil's financial dictionary, uh, retweeted something from 2017 that reminded me um, to go back. I'm going to reread it soon. But Carl Sagan, um, brilliant scientist wrote a book a long time ago called The Demon Haunted World, which is just a classic in many ways. And he's got a whole chapter in there called The Baloney Detection Kit. And it's really just a tour de force in psychological concepts. And and it's it's a reasonably practical kit in terms of, you know, things you can do to you know, steer clear of baloney and BS and things you can do to avoid fooling yourself. And, you know, ways that you can read something and immediately say, you know, that doesn't work. That doesn't follow that. There's something doesn't read. And so, you know, it gets back to what should be in a lot of ways, basic common sense. I mean, another way to frame this would be just critical thinking, right? I mean, that's something that you're theoretically supposed to learn throughout school um, that maybe I'm just getting old, but it seems like is less of an art that's taught in school these days. I don't know, but um, there's some great stuff in that book and, and we'll certainly link to that in the show notes. So I'll stop there and open it up to you guys and, and just, ask for your thoughts and comments and what tips and tricks you use to, uh, in your own baloney detection work. Yeah, I love this topic. I think it's so interesting. Um, one book I'd add is trust me, I'm lying by Ryan holiday. Yeah. Um, a good one. I think it's just so interesting and it's a little more on how, uh, baloney ends up widespread in certain circles, but I think it's pretty, pretty damn important and right on point. And a second book I'd recommend, which I think I have a framework that might be helpful uh, for, for launching into this discussion, is Investing Between the Lines by L.J. Rittenhouse. Um, it was one of uh, uh, Warren Buffett's books to read one year, uh, or at least it was, a, they, you know, she, she was at the Berkshire Annual uh, Meeting. What, what I found interesting, one of the points that I found most forceful out of the book, like a lot of the book is, I, I don't know, I told another, a, a couple other smart investors to read it. And they're like, yeah, I know it all. But to me, one of the most important things in there, you know, like obviously we all read 10Ks. Maybe I shouldn't say obviously in this era, but hopefully all of our listeners were, were, were doing that sort of stuff um, and, and listen to transcripts and whatnot. You know, look for management teams who don't speak in platitudes and say things that you could directly hold them accountable to. And so, you know, there's a big difference between management teams who will use wishy-washy language that's very vague, and you might leave yourself being impressed with the spirit of it, but unsure what exactly it means, versus management teams who are like, this is our objective, and these are the strategic levers we'll pull to try to get there. And, you know, it, it, it's not so much that like if a company doesn't hit their goals, they're not good, but it's that in putting those things out there, the entire organization knows exactly what they have to do and how to get there. And shareholders know how to judge whether management's been acting right or not. And, it, and you know, even if a company doesn't hit their goals, you might think highly of that company because they approach the situation in the right way. And because they've been transparent and honest about what they're doing and what their objectives are, they could actually critically assess. So that's another step of it, right? Language that critically assesses where their failures are. 
so that they could internalize both culturally and externally to their shareholders what they need to do to get it right the next time. Um, so I'm really big on semantics. I really hate language that could be subject to multiple interpretations. Um, I, by the way, I, I don't think that means like I, I, I have an appreciation for people who speak in nuanced terms and could hold two competing views and, and, and kind of parse through that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like avoid platitude kind of stuff like Phil, that, oh, my God, that Peloton mission statement, what does that even mean? Right? <laughs> like, um, well, that's so that's actually, that's actually one of the things in uh, Sagan's baloney detection kit is that anything that's untestable, unverifiable, unfalsifiable, is just useless. As a hypothesis, as a statement of anything, it's just totally worthless. So when you read something like that, yeah, your antennae should go up a little bit and say, okay, what's actually going on here? But you immediately just discount it as total nonsense because you realize like you you, you can never say that. Like you sell happiness, you can't measure it, you can't prove it, you can't quantify it. It's just total nonsense, right? So when you, when you take in that skeptical but not cynical view, and look, I, I I raised this because it made me laugh that he had that in there because we've talked so much about Peloton on here, which is never my intention. I couldn't care less, frankly. I don't have a horse in that race. And he goes on to point out, by the way, that I totally agree. I think one of the more likely outcomes, maybe not the most likely outcome, but certainly a very plausible outcome here is that somebody like Apple comes along and buys Peloton, in which case, you know, it could well be at a premium to where it's trading today and everybody will come back. And if they didn't, parse the nuance of what I'm saying here though. You idiot, you, you crap over <laughs> Peloton. Like you, you probably lost your shirt shorting that or whatever. And none of that is at all what I'm saying, but I think it was just funny to read someone in, in Scott's position who, who, by the way, you know, was very involved with a lot of these tech companies actually at the board level, um, you know, calling that out. And, and I just totally agree. And so there's just these little tips and, and tricks that, you know, like you said, I think the best business writers and the best business leaders Again, I would hold out Jeff Bezos in that regard. I would hold out Mark Leonard in that regard, certainly Warren Buffett in that regard. What they say is what they mean, and, and they mean everything that they say, and their writing is very crystal clear, and what they don't say is just as important as what they do say. And you can't accuse them of equivocating or towing the line with a bunch of fluffy nonsense that nobody can disprove. It's very direct, it's to the point, it's sincere, and that's the kind of thing that is, in my opinion, the only real hallmark of a true business leader that's going to stand the test of the time. And you get down into this yoga babble, and it's not that some of these companies that are spewing yoga babble can't be successful. It's not that some of them can't create vast amounts of wealth. But I think as a bunch, it would not be one that I would want to bet on. I love that phrase, yoga babble, because it's so damn fitting of our times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a bunch of other things. I mean, I... I don't know if anybody saw it. It was a favorite of mine. I, I've already put it in the links for the show notes. But Lucy Kellaway is a former columnist in the FT who retired maybe two or three years ago. And she wrote this kind of coda to her career. And the title of it was How I Lost My 25-Year Battle Against Corporate Claptrap. And Claptrap's kind of the British equivalent of baloney and, and BS. And it's just a brilliant column. And she goes on and on about all the nonsense, you know, business language and, and writing and yoga babble that she's seen and how much it's escalated over the years. And anyway, uh, it's definitely worth reading. Yeah, I'll jump in. I, I guess I would say, um, you know, ever since Deep Throat told Bernstein and Woodward, follow the money, uh, that's kind of the recipe, I think, for detecting a lot of this uh, BS. Um, for those who 
don't know the reference. It's a Watergate era movie uh, I'm referring to. But basically the idea is, you know, don't uh, listen so much to what people say, but just look at what they do. And specifically in the world we live in with uh, investing capitalism business, it's it's ultimately about the money. That seems to be the the scorecard. And, um, you know, you, you got to look at what, what, you know, how that squares compared to what people say. And I find, let's say, when I look at uh, a lot of small cap companies, everything looks good until you look at the executive compensation. And then you just see that you're being fleeced every year by the management and they're telling good stories and there's a lot of potential and how they have growth opportunities and this and that. But nicely, every year, they're just taking value away from their fellow shareholders um, in ways that's just not appropriate. And, um, you know, so I personally wouldn't be able to get comfortable with those kinds of companies. Um, but, you know, I, I also think you got to put uh, a lot of the blame on us as investors because most investors don't actually seem to care about these things. You know, it's kind of in the no good deed goes unpunished category. Like, I don't think anyone uh, gives Jack Dorsey any credit that he gave his own money uh, at some point to Twitter employees. Um, and meanwhile, you have Elon Musk basically fleecing his fellow shareholders with his egregious executive compensation um, you know, talking a good game about saving the world and uh, going to Mars and all of this good stuff. But when you look at his compensation, um, there seems to be some other priority uh, that he also cares about a great deal. And then, you know, you've had uh, criticism of him. Um, he's the richest man in the world, has given zero to charity. And then I see an announcement um, or a tweet by um, Sal Khan thanking Elon Musk for donating $5 million to Khan Academy. I mean, think about it, $5 million. It's better <laughs> if he had given nothing because $5 million to some a cause that ostensibly you believe in, but then you give $5 million, that's like me giving 50 bucks to something. I mean, literally. Um, and, you know, I know it uh, from knowing a ton of uh, emerging fund managers that have small funds, some of them want to do the right thing and have no management fee. And it turns out nobody cares. They're not getting money because they have no management fee. You know, so um, it's it's kind of interesting how the world works. Um, and everybody has to have their own uh, BS detection kit I guess, um, you know, one, one last point I'll say is um, it seems in, in the markets and in business, uh, the way things work now is you can basically do anything as long as you disclose it, right? Like dis disclosure rules have been upped, but everything is fair game. You know, you, you have these, every, every uh, earnings call you have, um, this safe harbor statement and, you know, after a while, nobody even listens to that. But actually what they're telling you in that is that they're about to fleece you and tell you stuff that's just not true. They're making up stuff and that's all in that safe harbor statement. Well, it should actually be that you cannot have a safe harbor against a, a lot of the things that, that they say. So, uh, you know, that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. And I will say too, I think 
I don't know where I would fall on the grumpy old man, get off my lawn, this is getting worse kind of spectrum. I mean, it certainly can feel that way. I think when you go back and look, there is a ton of horrible behavior in prior generations. And I think there have, I, I tend to agree with your comments, John, about safe harbor disclosures. Um, but there was horrible behavior before, you know, the Securities and Exchange Act, for example, and going back all through, I mean, there've been snake oil salesmen as long as there've been people. So I'm I'm trying to resist my own uh, pre-existing bias for whatever reason that this is getting worse. But I will say that I think no matter which way you fall on that debate, it doesn't really matter because your point that everybody has to have their own baloney detection kit is really the, the key thing and what I'm trying to get at. And I think maybe where I am discouraged in the short run, and I don't think I will be discouraged in the long run, I hope, but in the short run, it seems like there are a lot of people in all walks of life that don't even seem interested in having a baloney detection kit. And again, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if it's a short-run cultural phenomenon, a market phenomenon, everything, but it's it's been shocking to me how few people are just perfectly content to wallow in the baloney and just soak it up and revel in it. And and again, this is not a blanket statement, but there are large segments of the world right now that are just just drowning in baloney and nonsense and garbage. And it's it's bizarre to me. So I hope that it is indeed a, a, a short run phenomenon. But for for the rest of the world, I mean, look, I do think as people as humans and citizens of all kinds, you do have a duty to try to be as reasonable as you can possibly be, to be as moral and rational and intelligent as you're capable of. And that's not to pass any judgment. People are messy and people are imperfect and people are going to be wrong all the time. That certainly implies to me in spades, but you can at least make an effort. And so for anyone who's interested in making an effort, there's a lot of great stuff out there that can really help in this regard. I do not take the fatalist approach that that Kahneman has taken, that you can never really improve your own biases very much. He's pretty pessimistic about his own biases in that regard. His, his late colleague, Tversky, was not. He was much more optimistic in that realm. And I think some of the literature, it's, uh, you know, it's unclear, but it would say that there is room for progress there. And so if there is any room for progress, I don't think you could do uh, yourself any harm by studying this stuff and, and trying to get better. And thanks, Phil, by the way, for mentioning that I sound like a grumpy old man. So no, I, no, I was saying I just... sound like a grumpy old man. I, <laughs> I was talking about myself. No, I get it. I get it. Um, but no, you make a good point. And actually, I don't think it's getting worse over the long term. I think it's just consistent with human nature, which basically yeah. has stayed the same over a very long time. I think what we are witnessing now is kind of a a time, an episode in the market that's made a lot of things worse just because of where we are in the market cycle. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's a cyclical phenomenon. And I'm, I, don't, I don't just mean like in markets as well, but like socially. And there are certain times when there's just way more opportunity to uh, pass BS by people than others. And, you know, there's certain characters who are far more willing to poke at those opportunities when they arise. Um, so, you know, when you come out of a crisis of any kind, people tend to be a little more, um, well, I guess different kinds of crises. There are certain crises that unify people and kind of open more paths to this kind of affinity-based uh, hucksterish behavior. But, you know, after a financial crisis, it's a little harder to fool people on 
things. Like, you know, in the wake of Madoff, people were inherently far more skeptical, wanted way more transparency and wanted very different kinds of relationships with the people they were handing their money over to than before. Uh, but as you get, you know, what, we're 13 years past the, the unearthing of that, um, you know, I, it seems like behavior starts getting a little looser again and people throw their money into like some crazy uh, SPACs that I, I won't even go there. <laughs> um, but you, I think you see the general, uh, what, what I mean, like the, this stuff does have a cyclicality to it. Uh, there it are degrees of uh, vulnerability that are not persistent across time, but at all times there's some angle that people who want to exploit are, are ready, willing, and able to. Um, and yeah, I think that's one of the most important parts of our job, like uh, trying to detect the the BS out there um, and not be fooled like twice by the same kind of thing. And, you know, I, you know, John, you mentioned small caps. Uh, my first, very first presentation uh, at Manual of Ideas was IMAX. And I said, one of the, one of the bullet points of risk was management. And sure enough, they delivered on like everything I thought for the next three years in the business. But management did one thing, patted themselves on the back and gave themselves an option grant that was more than the entire net income they generated over those prior three years. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> yeah, that, that was a risk, you know? Um, and so they did it to my face, basically. And, uh, you know, that was, that was definitely a formative learning experience for me. But there's all kinds of that behavior out there. Um, and it happens for various different reasons, like uh, who, who knows exactly why, but we have to have our antennas up. And I, I love, Phil, what you said about being skeptical, not cynical. Um, I think that's a really important uh, distinction. And I think a lot of people uh, fancy themselves uh, skeptics, but end up cynics. And, um, you know, you miss out on a lot of opportunity if, if you are cynical rather than skeptical. Um, and so that's, that's definitely an important line to draw. Exactly. Yeah, it's very easy to talk yourself into a into the bomb shelter and never do anything if you get too far down that road. Um, and so, and, and you know, this may actually sound like it's somewhat at odds to our, you know, listeners may remember the golden era of fraud topic that I, I think that was maybe two months ago or so, um, which was Jim Chanos's comment or you know continuous kind of Twitter thread that we're, we're in the golden era of fraud. And at the time, I think our general conclusion, or at least mine, was that there's a lot of fraud right now. It is indeed pro-cyclical, but that it's not entirely clear that this is all that much worse or any worse than prior cyclical upticks. And I, I guess the same would imply it would apply here. It's it's um, it's kind of a, a related framework and a related topic. And again, I would refer right back to his research process that or at least the, you know, his explanation of it, which has always worked for me. And it it stood out in the last couple of weeks too, which and it, it applies to this yoga babble, the the BS rating that Scott Galloway did in this uh, book, which is that if you start your research process from the outside and work inward. So you start with what is the closest to the truth you're ever going to get, which is what people have to say in securities filings, under the penalty of law, under oath, and in a standardized format, you're going to get a much clearer and more sober view of reality than you're going to get from investor relations slide decks or tweets or press releases or campaign rallies or anything like that, right? Where the idea is to hype the good and ignore the bad. And so if you just get that right and have the skeptical but not cynical framework, I think you can avoid a lot of mistakes. I wonder if you guys have any specific uh, things that you use. Uh, you know, I you hear a lot about um, 
investors learning from FBI interrogators and so forth to uh, detect lies and whatnot. Um, any any tips or tricks, uh, for lack of a better word, that uh, you guys use in your research process? Yeah, this was something I was debating as I was preparing for this, was to how do you distill it and how do you put it into practice? And that's where I just coming, I came back over and over again in my notes for this, just saying, read and think and read and think and read and think. And so I don't know that it's all that teachable other than that. I don't know that you can boil it down to a checklist. I mean, I think FBI interrogators or whomever would, would be better at it than a lot of people. But I think you know, just like the forecasting tournaments. And by the way, this gets down to the essence of forecasting, right? So I would read Phil Tetlock on forecasting in this vein as much as anything. But just as non-subject matter experts can outperform subject matter experts in a forecasting tournament, I think non-forensic you know, forensic detectives can outperform, can be outperformed in a, you know, basically a lie detection test by people that are just coming about it with a, with a good common sense framework. So I don't have any, you know distilled essence here. I mean, the, the the psychological concepts, there's, you know, a dozen or 15, maybe 20 um, in the Carl Sagan baloney detection kit. Those are as good as any. So if you think you're prone to this sort of thing, you know, maybe tape that up to your computer monitor or your desk or whatever, and just stare at that for as long as it takes to really instill it in yourself and really make it a part of your own you know, common sense and just never take no for an answer. Come at it like an investigative reporter and just keep asking why, like a, like a child. I mean, any of us that have kids, you know that it's really stunning when a four-year-old or a nine-year-old keeps coming at you. Why? What is this? Why is this happening? Why are they doing that? And you have to answer those questions in a way that, you know, you can make it clear to the child in a, in a, without using jargon and without saying, oh, that's just how the world works or whatever. When you, when you have to actually do that, it's extremely powerful. And I'll never forget, I mean, I have a good friend who at the behest of some very wealthy, famous uh, A-list billionaire investors flew to California. This would have been, I guess, maybe 10 years ago almost now to to do due diligence on investing in Theranos. And after a few hours, he had no subject matter expertise whatsoever. And after a few hours, you know, he got back in the car and flew home and said, you know, I'll lay down on the train tracks. There's just no way we can invest in this. And he got all sorts of hell for that. I mean, people were really pissed. She had a, crafted a very successful narrative. She had a great image. It, it checked all the narrative boxes, but it failed all of these baloney detection kit tools, right? I mean, there wasn't a single one of them that would have done anything that throw up a huge red flag after another. And he just said, look, the, the risk of missing out here is real, but it's vastly outweighed by the risk of putting money into this thing when we can't answer even these basic questions. And it really made him unpopular for the ensuing number of years until the the lid kind of came off of that thing. But, you know, that's what we have to do in all walks of life, not just investing. So that's that's how I would approach it. And I'll offer three specific things. One is one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. Um, I took a job. My first job out of law school was working for Lenny Dykstra, which is a story I'll have to tell one day. I don't really want to go into the full story, but uh, I, I will tell you why I took the job. It's not because I really wanted to work for Lenny Dykstra, but it's because I wanted other things. I wanted to live in New York and I wanted to get paid more than I was otherwise offered. And so, you know, I didn't judge the situation intrinsically on its merits. 
And I think that is where a lot of people get into problems. And I think that's what certain people who engage in fraud aim for. They want you to make a decision, not because you're judging that decision face to face, but because you're doing it for some ancillary reasons. Um, and they tap into uh, your like what's important outside the scope of the one-on-one relationship. Um, number two, what I'd say is triangulate. Um, so in any answer, especially when we're dealing with the stock market, we're not trying to find an answer that is knowable ex ante. It's absolutely not in almost every case. Um, so we have to triangulate. Uh, so you can never rely on just what one person said in a situation. You have to do a lot of work. You have to do a lot of background. You have to talk to customers. You have to talk to vendors. You have to talk to other stakeholders in the business, former employees, current employees. Cast a wide net. Um, so you need like, you know, what, what Charlie Munger calls the Lollapalooza effect, where like everything comes together. And so you're not relying on just one simple element. So it's never any one person's word that gets you in that situation or in to make a decision. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, when, when I'm working on a company and I want to know whether I can trust management or not, I do apply Rittenhouse's model of looking at what management has said in the past that you can factually hold them accountable to and analyze how reality played out relative to what they had said in the past, whether their thesis were right on key areas, whether their strategic decisions were right in key areas. And I'm okay with things being wrong so long as the next step, what I'm about to say is met, that they critically assess where things didn't go right. And they give you an honest and true reflection on where they didn't work out. Um, and to me, if I get in a position and, and, and then things happen subsequently where I'm like, management said, this is absolutely the case, and then it's not, and that happens you know, twice, I'm gone. I'm never going to stay around at all anymore. Um, so those are, those are three things I'd throw out there. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Elliot. I should have thought of that as a great way to, if you had to distill it down into one little thing to just take away from this, it's triangulate it and, and just find more than one proof point of, the hypothesis and and be able to argue the other side of the hypothesis as well as somebody who is diametrically opposed from your position. And so if somebody says, we're going to have 10% market share of this addressable market that's a billion dollars, and you can't find anybody else mm. to back up those numbers, even in the same ballpark, I mean, then you're just, you're done. I mean, you can't, you can't really move forward when you, when you, you have that big of a discrepancy. But if you go out and, and they say, you find, as you said, customers, suppliers, vendors, former employees, competitors, everybody in the ecosystem says, yeah, well, I have my disagreements, but, and they go on to, to generally corroborate the, the overall direction of, of the comment or the, the hypothesis or the proposition, then you know you're working with something. And so, you know, again, to, to distill it back down, I mean, I don't think it's that, I, I actually don't think that the best Innovators, I don't think the best investors, I don't think the best business leaders, the, the best any kind of leader, I don't think any of them put out propositions that are nonsense and baloney in advance and say, prove me wrong. Um, I think that they create this culture and this ethos and this network around them that just allows those great things to flourish and happen. But then when you start doing the work, it becomes obvious. When you start triangulating it, you can figure out, okay, this is real. There, there's something to this. This is not just all puffery. One, you know, one nice thing uh, when it comes to researching public companies these days is you have so much data at your fingertips that we can actually, for most companies, uh, go back in time and see what did the management say 
they would do and then what did they actually do so uh, we don't have to just act from today forward but we can actually go back and uh, get the track record and um, you know i think too few people actually ava avail themselves of that opportunity i totally agree absolutely great well guys thank you so much fascinating discussion uh it was a pleasure thanks everybody for listening uh Looking forward to next week. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.